0: At Arendt, we regularly organize webinars that we are pleased to share on our podcast channel and on our website www.arendt.com. The following webinar was recorded on the 13th of May and is entitled New Transfer Pricing Guidance on Financial Transactions with our tax partner Alain Goebel and our Senior Transfer Pricing Economist Danny Beaton who have guided participants through the new rules published by the OECD.
1: So I think we are ready to start our webinar, which uh, will focus on the exciting new topic of the new transfer pricing guidance on uh, financial uh, transactions that uh, has been issued by the OECD uh, on the 11th of uh, February uh, this year. And uh, I can uh, briefly introduce the speaker. So, uh, Danny has uh, presented himself. Danny is our uh, senior transfer pricing uh, economist. Uh, uh, we've got uh, Brian Grun, who will join us uh, in a few moments and who will uh, moderate our discussions. And myself, Alan, we will partner, partner at uh, the tax department of Ireland and leading the transfer pricing team. So I think uh, we can move immediately to the next slide, and um, uh, we can start our, our presentation. I would like to uh, welcome you all uh, very warmly. I see the number of uh, attendees is uh, uh, increasing uh, all the time. We now have more than uh, 350 people that, uh, that joined, and uh, it's still, still increasing. So I uh, let uh, Denny start the presentation, and I wish you a very interesting uh, webinar. Thank you very
2: much, Alan. Um, So we have, uh, after this content slide, we have 23 substantive slides. We've allowed ourselves about 45 minutes, so we can go on a bit longer. We're going to try and answer some of your questions as we go along, so please do use the chat box. And uh, also, at the end, there'll be time. I'm going to devote one slide to talking about the background to the new OECD guidance and what it's trying to achieve. And then in 11 slides, go through uh, all the topics covered by the guidance, making some comments, uh, except for hedging and the risk-free rate. We, we simply don't have time. Uh, and then in six slides, Alan is going to get to some practical examples of how this will impact on some commonly used financing arrangements, which is very interesting. Uh, and then I'm going to wrap up with five slides of, of uh, recommendations for taxpayers uh, for each kind of transaction, but also for our agreements, our research, and our transfer pricing reports. But please do ask questions at any time. So if we can move on to, yes, we have moved on already, contents and objectives. This is actually uh, a BEPS report and therefore has a, a slant against tax avoidance. It is also a new chapter 10 of guidance for everybody concerned of the gui- of the transfer pricing guidelines, very much needed in the absence of such guidance. We've proceeded um, to uh, apply theories of finance and economics and we've relied on key case law as well to guide us. And uh, this key case law is very apparent uh, in this in this guidance they've helpfully taken the challenges and some solutions from the case law and done what they can with them although unfortunately those cases are sometimes contradictory and that uh, and go all the way um, and and also we can see for example in the loan delineation uh, some IRS guidance and practice uh, for the loan terms and conditions uh, chevron discussions for the amount of debt, UK and uh, Australian tax office guidance, financial guarantees, G Capital Canada, cash pooling, ConocoPhillips, et etc., and captives, the UK Dixon's case, at some length and detail. It's rather surprising, actually, that debt factoring hasn't been included, given the excellent and detailed advice in, um, in McKesson Canada, and also the, the scope for clear, very clear abuse of, of debt factoring more than any of these other arrangements but there you go. Also, performance guarantees aren't covered, perhaps because there isn't any case law, but I can tell you that behind the scenes, we've, we've worked on such cases and they're complicated. Um, it's a general comment is that this supports what we're already doing, um, but it asks for even more of it. So let's move on. Move on Two. First topic uh, in two slides, the accurate delineation of loan agreements. Um, Obviously the implication is is if it's not treated as a loan, the payments won't be treated as deductible interest. Um, When does it start to apply? It depends, I suppose, when this guidance becomes hard law in your jurisdiction. Alan will say something about the Luxembourg context there. But uh, we'd advise clients for transactions that commence after the 11th of February generally to act on the guidance. Um, frustratingly individual jurisdictions are still allowed to apply their own approaches through their domestic legislation to, 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 to interpret what is a loan agreement uh, but guidance is now provided in the form of very useful indicators which we can refer to when when preparing our our loan agreements, which is very helpful, and these to us, these these indicators appear to fall into two broad categories, as shown by the next slide. That is, on the the left hand side, there terms and conditions of the loan agreement itself, and then context, um, environment, the way in which the loan agreement is operated, and um, the the right hand top box is a list of suggestions for things to include. Um, in the loan agreement, such as a, a repayment date um, and an interest, um, and uh, no uh, gratuitous loan waivers, um, and, and probably including some covenants as well to minimise the risk for the lender, and, and with the implication of reducing the interest rate. And down the bottom right, um, the, uh, the the interest should be collected when when due. Uh, uh, the borrower should have flexibility as to when it repatriates cash for example um, and uh, some other features there which I'm going to come on to in more detail but we could perhaps think about drafting and operation as a helpful starting point and then if we move on to the next slide um, when different terms and conditions of a loan agreement may be imputed. Um, so this guides us to first of all, look at the other options realistically available to the borrower and the lender. And what we are told to think about here is options for the borrower to borrow more cheaply. For example, by offering security, borrowing for a shorter period, foregoing various g- generous options and so on. This is, uh, this is um, Chevron material. Uh, and then to think about other options realistically available to the, to the lender, perhaps the lender would not being in the business mainly of lending might want to uh, shield itself by having some covenants, for example. Um, so at that point, I think we have a question that we can try to answer here. Um, is it essential for interest to be payable on a loan? Uh, perhaps I can start by asking Alan. Alan, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, if we look at the key uh, indicators um, provided by this new uh, guidance, uh, it seems that uh, the uh, presence of an interest uh, is, is really one of the, or is not the main pillar of uh, characterizing a debt instrument. But, um, and I think this this is also more or less the, Uh, the position of uh, the transfer pricing community in Luxembourg is that uh, it cannot be completely outruled that uh, in case of a a loan uh, that does not have uh, any interest accruing, uh, that it is automatically, uh, mandatorily to be considered as uh, equity. Indeed, there could be um, certain situations uh, where uh, an interest-free loan would still qualify as a debt instrument, uh, in our view. because. You could have uh, all the other key indicators uh, that point towards uh, the qualification of a debt instrument. You have to take into account the context, also the global context, situation of the lender and of the borrower. Um, and in order to have this uh, qualification, you need to have a 360-degree uh, view of uh, of the situation. In practice, uh, where you could find situations where uh, interest-free loans uh, existed, for example, uh, in, uh, in, in in case of bridge loans, uh, in case of uh, loans made uh, to an unrelated entity that is in a distressed uh, situation, um, I think there's also some case law on that. And maybe then you can uh, provide further further information on that.
2: Well, I think we could note the um, EU EU case law Um, last year, I I think it was, uh, regarding the practice um, of the the German tax administration in in, uh, insisting that a parent company did indeed collect interest from its uh, struggling subsidiaries who who actually couldn't afford to pay the interest and risked going out of business and um the, the decision was that this it would it was rational not to collect interest uh in the short term uh because uh you know eventually these operating companies could um could 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 pay interest on future loans for example and uh, an lender might have looked at it in that way but uh clearly controversial
1: so i think in a, in a, as a conclusion um... Now I analyze this, uh, I think that uh, there are two points that need to be, uh, uh, to be, to be reminded. The first one is that uh, the absence of interest uh, does not equal automatically that the instrument is an uh, equity instrument, uh, and needs to be characterized as equity. And the second is also more particular for Luxembourg. Um, as you may or may not know, we have still a wealth tax in, in Luxembourg, um, which is uh, governed by specific uh, law uh, dedicated only to network tax and valuation of uh, networks of, of companies that are subject to network tax, and, um, and, and here the position uh, I think the, uh, our, our research led us to the conclusion that even in case an instrument would be requalified into um, into equity, then this requalification would only uh, um, be applicable to corporate income tax. Um, and not to 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 network effects uh reason being that network effects has is a a domestic legislation uh that uh, cannot be overridden by the OECD tpg uh, that are only soft law uh, without uh, any amendment uh, of the law so i think this is a very very important point that needs to be uh, to be kept in mind
2: thanks thanks alan and that's a general point isn't it that uh our, our broader corporate tax colleagues are, are interested in the implications of these principles to, uh, to other taxes, which we have to explore with them. Um, we haven't got on to VAT yet. Uh, let's move on to the arm's length amount of debt concepts. Um, so, the guidance requires us to consider the maximum amount of debt which uh, lenders would be prepared to provide. Uh, based on the ability clearly of the the borrowers to service the loan to pay the interest when when due in the principal at the end. They'd also want to take into account the um, default rate and expected loss and uh, check that they can can cover those in the interest uh, payments that they, they can achieve. And then from the borrowers, there is a principle which HMRC in the UK have applied for many, many years, the could versus would test, which is the headroom which borrowers would like to maintain not to borrow to their full capacity just in case perhaps as it says in the guidance here to maintain a minimum credit rating uh, in case they wanted to go to the market uh, to borrow in future Um, or they might want to limit the loan to the amount of money they need to, to purchase a particular asset so we have to look at the underlying purpose of the loan and then we can look having considered both of those things we can look at a third thing which is the outcome of such thinking such bargaining between independent lenders and borrowers and look at the maximum and in, uh, gearing gearing interest cover um, for example in, in covenants in relevant loan agreements or failing that in uh, recent financial statements of companies in the industry so we have those different sources, but it's a two-sided approach. And then if we move on to the amount of debt difficulties, the next slide, thank you. Uh, briefly, uh, we can envisage uh, issues about, do you um, consider uh, in the the uh, ability to service the debt and the forecast data, how robust is that, or historic data? Um, you need to be able to substantiate uh, your financial forecast by first setting out the key assumptions about growth and prices and costs and so on and what leads you to believe that they are robust assumptions that's the kind of discussion we've been having in thin cap uh, discussions for about 25 years in the UK um, and then uh, the time period of analysis Uh, Is it a kind of industry, the kind of investment where an arm's length lender would say, at steady state after, say, three years, I see that forever after you will be able to comfortably service this loan. Um, So I will give you some leeway. And then, you know, we should look at the difference between industries uh, in that kind of practice. So moving on to the next slide about methods for determining the arm's length amount of uh, originally, we had a lot more we were going to say about this, but we haven't got time for all of that. Um, we can look to um, financial statements, uh, as I said, lending covenants and the capital asset pricing method and other sources and, and methods and this is all um, acceptable. Um, some of these methods are more relevant to certain kinds of financing than others. For example, um, surveys for real estate lending and um, the capital asset pricing method for financial intermediation and so on. Um, The simpler methods are less precise, um, but more likely to be challenged. I'm thinking about uh, the Basel equity ratio being used as a shortcut in the fiat treasury company state aid challenge. But what can you do in a treasury company where there are hundreds of loans? You have to take simplifying measures and I hope that um, that will be accepted. Then if we turn turn to the next slide about the calculation of the arm's length interest rate, Um, what struck us here is that as well as using our normal quantitative factors from our uh, credit rating agency models, we should also consider qualitative factors. Um, This is where you start to get into the quality of the the management team of the borrower and so on. and we should also consider uh, also always consider implicit group support and make an adjustment for it and uh, this is then adjusted to calculate the credit rating uh, for the specific financial instrument and then there's a discussion of loan fees noting that some fees would be reasonable to charge if not they should be that should be reflected in a higher interest rate but uh, these fees, if they are charged, should only be a proportion of the normal fee that you'd see in the market, because these aren't, aren't banks making uh, 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 loans, and they don't have other costs to cover, such as regulatory compliance or raising capital, which is a good point. And then um, and it talks about where the finance has been raised through a loan in, uh, how to um, add to that original interest rate to achieve the interest rate out it talks about agency functions where no risk is actually taken and then the intermediary is just going to mark up on costs of its services and it warns that um, if, if you try to use a shortcut of credit default swaps uh, they're not reliable uh, because their price depends on the volume of trades so the the liquidity let's move on to the next slide on financial guarantees. So I said performance guarantees are not covered, they're more complex actually, where uh, in the oil and gas industry, for example, um, every, every bank requires a parental performance guarantee from every contracting oil pipeline laying subsidiary and the fee is half a percent per annum of the value of the contract. But if anything goes wrong, the other operating companies club together and sort it out between themselves so should there be any fee that would be interesting to see guidance on but here we are with financial guarantees and under delineation interesting sensible points uh, the guarantee must be legally enforceable not some sort of keep well letter or whatever Uh, does the guarantor have the financial capacity to meet its obligations clearly will the guarantor but here will the guarantor also default if the borrower defaults in other words if they're Two companies in the travel industry, and there's a problem like this, and they're both at risk of going under. What is the use of the guarantee? Good point. Uh, then we think about the benefit to the borrower and the maximum fee. Is it because the guarantor has a better credit rating, or is it because it has the same credit rating but it's in a different line of business and it, it increases the pool of funds available to service the loan, for example? Um, what are the expected cost and required return for the guarantor and hence the minimum fee which it re- would require so maximum fee looking at the borrower's perspective minimum fee for the guarantor hopefully they don't overlap there is a, a gap between them where should you be we're going right back to the um, sort of G Capital Canada discussion somewhere in the range based on the competition economics concepts of relative bargaining power. Let's move on to cash pooling now. Um, Here we see the first real skepticism and uh, hostility uh, in in the guidance. Um, Hostility to the convention of having a uh, what we call an entrepreneurial cash pool leader which is viewed as a, as a kind of bank, and is earning a, um, a healthy interest margin. Uh, there are many restrictions on this now. The cash pool leader must be able to control and bear liquidity risk and credit risk, and a physical, not notional cash pooling arrangement. Um, for, so for example, it needs to bear the risk from the mismatch between the maturity of the credit and debit balances. Um, it needs to bear the risk of the cash pool members, are unable to pay their debit balances and so on. Um, The cash pool benefits then, having established that the cash pool leader should get an interest margin, the cash pool benefits should share the remaining synergy benefits, assuming that the cash pool was uh, set up as part of their deliberate and concerted action. Um, In some way, through the interest rates, is that Debit and credit balance, interest rates. How should we we meant to consider the relative bargaining power of the participants? But we don't know how. In the case law, it was said that, uh, for example, the company with the most uh, volume going volume going through the pool was creating the most benefits, most savings, or the company with the best credit rating was enabling the others to borrow more cheaply, or the company. Uh, with the biggest credit average credit balance deserve the biggest share, we need more guidance on this and then uh, clearly long term balances, the subject of major case law in this area, um, need to be converted rapidly into term loans. Um, you, you don't want a company going under uh, having developed a very large negative balance with one of the other parties uh, on the tab to to pay. This off that's uh, disastrous. Let's move on to captive insurance and reinsurance. Um, here we are guided to the the invaluable actually 2010 OECD report on the attribution of profit to permanent establishments, Part Four, Insurance. Uh, very good discussion of risks and significant people functions. Again. General scepticism about these arrangements. Uh, is there a real possibility of loss? If so, is a real possibility of loss for the captive? Um, can it diversify? Not you know, typo there of the risk, pull it. Um, does it have the skills? Are the insured parties better off uh, by using the captive? Does the captive have adi- adequate capital for the risks? And And so on. Uh, important points the last time I looked I think about a third of the FTSE 100 had captives they are a risk issue let's move on to captive insurance and reinsurance pricing Um, there's a discussion of premiums how could you price the premiums well um, you could you could look at uh, premiums charged by third parties but bearing in mind that captives perform fewer functions. Um, you try to set the premiums based on expected loss and return on capital. So that's the cut method and the capital asset pricing method, but these are largely rejected in terms of benchmarking the overall profitability of the captive using the TNMM. And uh, here we are, we are unlike unlike the fiat case, we are guided To only allow an arm's length return on the amount of capital necessary to cover the captives actual risks and at the bottom there we get back to the DSG case if a related party acts as a sales agent uh, at the point of sale and the captive reinsures the risk with third parties what is the captive doing very little Uh, It should get um, it should get the normal Return for insurance uh, on its capital, and the agent should keep any excess profit, which if you have a point of sale advantage will be massive and let's turn finally on this section uh, to group treasury functions the next slide again there's a lot more we could say here um, there is a, a a presumption a bizarre presumption I think that to group treasury generally are a low low-value support service, simply there to coordinate access to external borrowing. And they should get cost plus, but um in fact it's head office somewhere else in the group which is deciding the Treasury policies and so on. Um, but possibly the Treasury deserves a lending margin. It doesn't look like the Treasury group Treasury companies I've worked with who are very complex businesses. Uh, struggling to balance a lot of um a lot of interest rates on credit and debit balances short and long term uh overdrafts cash pooling and make them more consistent and keep them up to date Uh, so i think i expect a lot of controversy uh in that area Um, so i'm gonna i'm going to um i'm gonna hand over i think um at that point uh, but as we can answer a question first, um, uh, what, what, is, what is the key the key thing that's new about this guidance? I think, from my perspective, it would be um, it would be the limit on the amount of debt, the concept that there's an arm's length amount of debt, um, the general two-sided approach, the scope for recharacterization, which seems to be greater than for any other kind of transaction, uh, and those those qualitative factors that we have to include in our credit ratings. I don't know, Alan, whether you've been struck by anything else.
1: No, respect. I agree. I, I I agree. But maybe one further thing which is new is that uh, for the first time the uh, the OECD has given a clear list of uh, key indicators uh, in order to qualify a financial instrument, as step to equity. And um, this, this I think, is new, but this needs to be handled uh, indeed with care because, uh, again, in uh, domestic legislation around the world, there might already be uh, key indicators available. And um, uh, normally, at least in a, in a legal system like Luxembourg, the domestic ones would uh, prevail and could not be overridden by the key indicators of the of the OECD. But I think that's, that, that's also a novelty that, uh, that's important to, to be in mind.
2: Thanks, thanks, Alan. And uh, I gather that
0: Brian has... Yes. Uh, has you, uh, I,
2: hello, hello.
0: Hello. And, and hello, Danny. Hello, Alan. And hello to everybody uh, who joined us today. Uh, apologies, I am your late... Uh, joining moderator who uh, has had uh, technical problems dialing in but uh, I'll be monitoring any questions that come in and then I'll be interrupting Danny and Alan as we go along in order to uh, put those questions to them today um, while uh, I've got the floor Danny there are a, a couple of questions um, that have come through if we can uh, cover these off um, one is is around uh the effects of uh covid so obviously the the situation uh we're in now uh as we as we come out of this do we see um any kind of impact uh generally i'm getting getting lots of questions around uh what what we feel will happen uh i'm also getting uh questions around uh, how this will affect um, kind of interest rates and uh, and what's your your views on that?
2: Uh, Shall I I just start there, um, Brian? It's it's interesting. It's something we've been discussing with other uh, uh, law firms, actually. Um, And we're all anticipating, of course, the uh, additional guidance from the OECD by the end of the year on how transfer pricing generally should respond to that problem and we might expect it to draw quite heavily on on chapter nine on restructuring perhaps but i think a major theme of it will be on the extent to which we should we should review and respect um agreements um do they themselves give scope to um be flexible on you know collecting interest and so on uh reviewing Charge uh, uh, interest rates and so on, um, renegotiating, and even if they don't, what are what are arm's length parties doing? Um, what would be what, what would it be commercially rational for our parties to do? As in that German case I, I mentioned, um, clearly there's more risk in the market at the moment. It should have an a, 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 an impact on on new uh, loans and guarantee fees and so on. Um, but Alan, uh, did you have any? Uh, other comments on that
1: no I don't have any further comments on that I, I completely agree
0: mm.
1: maybe in so, the, um, for the sake of time we would need to move on to the to the next slide I see time is passing by I've seen some very interesting questions that are, that are coming up as well um, I hope we have time to to respond to at least some of them, uh, which are very interesting. But uh, first, let's move on and maybe the next few slides will already answer a few of the questions that have been raised uh, meanwhile. So here what we have did is uh, we um, uh, summarized a few typical Luxembourg uh, investment structures um, that are very commonly used in Luxembourg and how could these new transfer pricing guidelines uh, impact those uh, structures. So just to give you a a kind of a flavor of um, uh, what could be the possible impact uh, on those uh, common uh, investment structures. So uh, let's move on to the next slide. And we've got a a first one, a very um, uh, plain vanilla back-to-back financing structure, whereby you would have a Luxembourg finance company uh, that borrows funds uh, either from shareholders, investors, or third-party banks and uh, uses the proceeds uh, of those loans to on-lend to uh, affiliates. Um, In our example here, a foreign subsidiary. Under the normal Luxembourg transfer pricing rules, you would fall under the circular uh, 56.1 and uh, 56.1, regarding uh, the transfer pricing uh, rules on uh, intra-group lending. So what this circular basically requests you to do is uh, you need to determine the necessary amount of uh, equity at risk. Uh, then uh, you need to uh, determine the uh, profit margin, which is uh, typically um, done through the TAPM methodology on the uh, return of your equity on your equity at risk. And um, you need to ensure that the interest rates uh, under the loan that uh, is granted by the Luxembourg company to its subsidiary is, uh, is arm's length. So, uh, typically, we do already have in source country some transfer pricing documentation disrespect, which can be used, Uh, and you need to maintain your minimum uh, substance uh, in terms of uh, having Luxembourg resident board members uh, taking all the important decisions in Luxembourg during regular board meetings and so on. So, what could change now uh, would be the determination, first of all, of whether your debt instruments are ac- accurately uh, drafted, and um, you must uh, ensure that, uh, uh, regarding the key indicators, um, uh, they 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 need to point towards the qualification of a debt instrument uh, in order to be um, on the safe side regarding a possible requalification. From the tax authorities, that your, let's say, either your loan coming in or going out would uh, be possibly requalified into into equity. So that would have, an, um very often a very uh, negative effect on and on a very high tax load. So uh, I think that's that that's the first point that needs to be checked. Uh, make sure that your know, that instrument is indeed that instrument uh, according to the new rules. Then the qualitative factors that Danny already uh, pointed out, as well as the uh, options uh, realistically available. So those uh, elements uh, are to be uh, put in in your transfer pricing documentation, uh, which means that your transfer pricing advisor would be obliged to ask you more questions uh, and additional information uh, would need to be provided. Uh, one further thing could be that the interest rate uh, might be impacted uh, given the group rate um, and uh, given the qualitative uh, factors of uh, that need to be taken into account in order to determine the uh, the credit uh, risk that is um, Used to calculate the necessary equity at risk. So that also could have an an influence. But apart from that typically we think that uh, hopefully the new guidance would not have too much of an impact on, on this kind of structures. Let's move to the next slide, which is uh, more or less uh, a, the same um, mechanics, except that here we have uh, investments into a debt portfolio, meaning uh, loans uh, to third parties that, uh, is, that are unrelated. And so this is an uncontrolled uh, transaction. Typically, those were financed in the the Luxembourg company would basically uh, be financed with a very uh, low amount of equity and uh, uh, fund the acquisition of the portfolio, uh, typically in a ratio of $1.99 for that, one for equity, uh, through some kind of um, profit-participating instrument, so that basically all the profits that are derived from the debt portfolio um, can be uh, repatriated as uh, interest payments under the under this uh, profit participating um, uh, loan agreement and black score would only be subject to a small margin um, mm-hmm. I think here yeah, the new uh, transfer pricing guidance um, um, have a more significant uh, effect um, mm-hmm. first of all the um, the 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 1 debt to equity ratio in in our view uh, cannot be used as a lump sum uh, safe harbor because the, one of the effects of the new guidance is that all the safe harbors in terms of uh, debt to equity ratio do not uh, are not recognised anymore. So um, the to 1 debt to equity ratio would need uh, to be documented as uh, as being arms length. So. Uh, we think it's not excluded that uh, you could come to this result, but in any case, you need to go through the analysis and you need to check in terms of um, risk uh, whether your equity is, is sufficient. And the second is very often those are um, finances are fed by profit participating instruments whereby the variable interest is not kept. Um, so it could be an effective rate of uh, theoretically 1,000%. So there also, we, don't, we believe it's not. They are not. Complete, it's not completely excluded that you can uh, use a PPL, but you need to be in a position to justify that basically the interest uh, that you uh, pay on your PPL uh, still complies with the arm's length interest rate. Um, this could, for example, uh, be done by capping uh, uh, the interest uh, on a cumulative basis on an, uh, on an arm's length rate, uh, or the needs can be can be envisaged. The general approach, indeed, that we have is basically that um, uh, the transaction. If you want, really want to be on the safe side, is that uh, you could assimilate these um, structures uh, simply to um, to the unrelated uh, intra to, sorry, to the related intra group lending, uh, where we have a circular from the tax authorities that provides the necessary guidance. And uh, given that we do not have any. Any other guidance uh, from the tax authorities on the practical side, uh, if you would uh, simply apply the transfer pricing a circular uh, as it is for related transactions, well then in any case you should be on the safe side. What is to be considered on top of these structures are of course the uh, the other eight Rules that might have an impact, such as the interest limitation rules, and of course the anti-hybrid mismatch rules that come on top of the transfer pricing uh, consideration. But we can move to the next uh, to the next slide, where we have um, uh, the same situation with the Luxembourg uh, civilization vehicles. And uh, civilization vehicles um, are commonly used in in Luxembourg. Uh, typically, they are um, fully subject to tax, uh, but. Uh, uh, given their specific uh, limited scope uh, of activity being only being be, being only um, securitizing uh, assets, um, the general approach is to consider them as an agent and to uh, set them up with a minimum share capital they don't bear any risks uh, they they transfer all the risks uh, uh, through the securitization um, from the underlying assets uh, to the investors, so given that they have no risk. They don't need any share capital to cover those risks. Um, they uh, are passive uh, vehicles because they are only allowed to securitize assets, so uh, they don't have a lot of functions, uh, and um, their function profile so is, is 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 more or less better than that of an agent. Uh, so typically, we remunerate them uh, if we remunerate them uh, on a cost plus uh, cost plus basis. Um, the issue is that the, um, the the digitalization vehicles therefore are typically not seen as uh, beneficial owners of the uh, of the income, uh, which could create issues in 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 the source countries regarding potentially withholding taxes. Um, but the nice thing about the Luxembourg digitalization vehicle is that. Uh, uh, a possible recharacterization of uh, a debt instrument into an equity instrument would not have any effect because, under Luxembourg law on securitization companies, the um, uh, distributions made by the by the Luxembourg securitization company are always uh, uh, tax deductible uh, because they are requalified uh, by the law into um, into interest. Um, so this would mean that they would remain deductible and they would uh, not be subject to any withholding tax. Um, and this comes, this leads us with, uh, uh, with the conclusion that um, the Luxembourg civilization vehicle might be uh, a very interesting vehicle to be used uh, in connection with those uh, new uh, transfer, pricing, uh, transfer pricing rules and could in certain cases be a, a very, very efficient uh, solution. Um, I said, that was the general approach that we used the ESV as an agent. One could also uh, try to finance it by uh, more by, by share capital, uh, which would then be at risk, and then we could also envisage to, in, to assimilate it to uh, a uh, normal Luxembourg company that is uh, covered by the transfer pricing circular and simply apply the same transfer pricing treatment, which would make it much more robust uh, regarding beneficial mm-hmm. ownership uh, issues. Um, but in any case, the Luxembourg SB should be um, kept in mind. Uh, can be a solution uh, with regards to the new to the new guidance. And we can move on to the next slide, which is the um, uh, Luxembourg holding company which invests into participation, um, either qualifying for the, the participation exemption or not. Um, typically, there was a safe harbor 85:15 for debt uh, to equity, so 85. Uh, uh, debt-carrying an arms-land interest and 15 uh, equity or interest-free uh, loans uh, and that was considered by the tax authorities as a safe harbor uh, and uh, typically they would not uh, challenge uh, this debt-to-equity ratio. If we look at um, new uh, transfer pricing guidance, well, this ratio is no longer sustainable because um, it's a lump sum safe harbor uh, ratio and uh, our recommendation is that uh, you would need to be in a position to uh, justify that this is the arm's length uh, ratio. So you cannot rely on safe harbors, uh, or or at least if you rely on safe harbors, you you might be at risk. To the best of our knowledge, the tax authorities in Luxembourg have not yet uh, challenged uh, any any uh, 85-15 debt-to-equity ratio. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, it has to be kept in mind that this ratio is based on administrative practice only. And that uh, it can, uh, the situation can can, can be different uh, uh, at any at any moment. So so there are, our recommendation would be, um, don't rely on, on formal safe harbor ratios, but uh, make sure that you have the right financial analysis to, um, to 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 justify it. And there are several methods to do that, um, which uh, Danny had um, explained uh, explained before. Um One further thing is that uh, in case your ratio is not justified if the if the shareholding of course uh, is not qualified for the participation exemption um the situation is even more severe because not only uh, you might incur with only tax on the um excessive interest payments but also um the uh, excessive interest payment being requalified as uh, hidden dividend, um, it's not deductible. And hence, uh, you would end up with a uh, corporate income tax on the income derived from the foreign company or from the subsidiary. Um, let's move to the next slide, the 22. Um, yes, real estate. Very often, uh, we have Luxembourg companies that own real estate in Luxembourg or abroad. If, um, typically, if the um, the real estate is held abroad, uh, we, we think there is not so the new guidance does not have a, a huge impact or significant impact on uh, on the Luxembourg company. Again, if you relied on an uh, 85/15 debt-to-equity ratio, that of course could not be uh, is not necessarily correct anymore. But uh, if the real estate is a foreign foreign-owned real estate, well, then um, it's of course the debt-to-equity rules that uh, are acceptable from that jurisdiction that are the most uh, the most relevant. Uh, this being said. It should also be acceptable in Luxembourg, um, and there should be a double check that it is indeed acceptable because uh, according to the administrative practice, even if the real estate is situated abroad, it is only taxable abroad, and uh, interest is only deductible then also abroad, um, in case of excessive interest, they they usually consider that uh, they could re-qualify the interest into a hidden dividend distribution subject to potentially a 15% uh, withholding tax. and uh the the last the next slide um i think is can move on to the to the to the next slide again so I, I i think this one is for danny again
2: okay what i'd like to do in the interest of time is um is to note that the next few slides repeat in, but, but in summary lists the risk issues that we've gone through in the earlier slides for the different kinds of transaction. So I'd like to, in the interest of time, move quickly to uh, to, to, to slide five of this summary section. And the next, there we are, the last slide. What does this mean um, for the documents that we prepare, which in turn means partly what research should we should we carry out and what methods, which perspectives should we cover in our work? Clearly, we've established that for loan agreements, they need to have regard to a checklist of features. Um, We need to include documentation, not just for the interest rate, but for the amount of debt. Um, The commercial rationality of loan terms and conditions should be explained to avoid it a chevron uh, situation um, interest rates should be consistent with the results of a quantitative and qualitative credit rating exercise taking into account implicit group support and we can't just in- assume that the implicit support equalizes credit ratings a guarantee financial guarantee fee should ref- reflect the perspective of both parties you can't just use one method uh, and uh, and discuss their relative bargaining power Cash pool leaders are under great uh, suspicion. They must be shown to have important risk management responsibilities and to bear these risks and add value. Uh, similarly, um, for cash pool leaders, and a scientific approach needs to be developed in a, in a, in a way which isn't completely clear uh, to allocate the, the benefits of cash pooling between the cash pooling participants through the interest rates. Um, and that's notable because some of the case law says that some participants should be receiving guarantee fees from some of the others. That's not what the guidance says. And with captives, they must be shown to be able to pool uncorrelated risks, even if it means also taking on third party business if they can. And finally, treasury companies um, are regarded as a low risk uh, service uh, center, clearly they aren't. And we need to be some education with the help of treasury Uh, specialists who are generally hugely knowledgeable on financial transfer pricing to to educate tax administrations in that respect Uh, and with that I'd like to finish our formal presentation and and hand over to Brian for any final uh, questions and for uh, wrapping up and talking about
0: next steps. Thanks Danny, thanks Alain. Um, In the interest of time, let's just cover a couple of uh, questions. I'd just like to say as well to everybody participating that you will receive uh, an email copy of all of the slides. Uh, We'll also be posting a replay on Aaron.com. So if you need to listen again to the comments, then of course you can do, and we will also follow up. We've had lots of questions today for those that we don't get through. And we'll only have uh, time for a couple here now. We will be posting the answers to the most popular questions on our website as well. And where we can, we will get back in touch with uh, people directly. So a question here around, um, could we comment on whether the forecast financial data used for the granting of the lending should be reviewed in subsequent periods in terms of actual versus forecasted by the lender?
2: Um, can I comment on that? Um, I think it's not, it's, not addressed, it's not addressed explicitly in this guidance, and of course it should be. But perhaps that's because it's assumed that we will also refer to the other uh, fairly recent guidance on hard-to-value intangibles, where exactly that is, um, is 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 permitted and recommended as an indicator um, that forecasts weren't soundly based. So if the if the if the financial performance of a licensee, for example, or a, uh, an acquirer of IP is very different from that used in the uh, in the pricing or or the valuation, then uh, that could be an indication that the the assumptions uh, made weren't robust. And uh, I think it's perfectly very good question and, and and confirms what I suggested that our assumptions in our uh financial modeling uh which have nothing to do with finance but to do with quantities and uh, and so on they they need to be tested on management
0: thank you great thanks danny um final final question i think this one will go to alan um are there any types of transaction that you think will cause the most controversy and, and i guess as well alan is is there any um kind of Luxembourg yeah. aspect to that?
1: Um, from a Luxembourg side, I think what will be causing most of uh, controversies and maybe tax disputes are the qualifications, the key indicators and the uh, application thereof um, to financial instruments. Uh, as you know, we have, uh, uh, being a financial center and a hub for companies, financing companies, uh, we have a whole selection of financial instruments that are uh, hybrid uh, which have quite uh, different uh, characteristics uh, so there is a lot of uh, uh, qualification uh, most likely to be done uh, and depending on the position that the tax authorities uh, might take uh, i think the disputes on the qualification will be uh, will be the most uh, the most important
0: i think with the new with, the, with this new new guidance Great. Thank you, Alain. I think in in the interest of time, we we have run over, so apologies for that. But uh, I'd like to thank everybody again for joining us today. Uh, You will all receive uh, email copies of the slides, as I mentioned, so uh, please um, have a look through those. If you do have questions, uh, the the final slide in the pack has the uh, email and contact addresses for Danny and also for Alain so of course uh, we'd be happy to to help you in any way we can so i guess from from us i'd like to say thank you very much for all of your time today uh, stay safe stay healthy and uh, we look to forward to uh, speaking to you all again when we run our next webinar so thank you very much goodbye Thank you for listening to our webinar. Don't hesitate to visit our dedicated transfer pricing page on our website www.ahent.com. You can also register for our next webinars on the event and training page. Thank you.